The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. All right, I think we are live. We are live. Awesome. It is Saturday, a Sunday, uh, April 12th. It is five o'clock. It's my one month anniversary of leaving New York. It's Kate's one month anniversary of leaving New York. It's Boris Johnson's zeroth anniversary of leaving the hospital. (laughs) We are not allowed to have I love that we measure things in terms of Boris Johnson now. Yeah. (laughs) We have uh, two dogs on the show today, uh, Nina and uh, Misha, who's down on the floor, but who is uh, uh, nonetheless here for the, for the day. Uh, oh, we Misha. do not yet have our mystery guest, who uh, I'm going to have to text and uh, 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 find out what's up with. Um, so okay, Kate you want me gonna to talk for a minute while okay. I, uh, I can do that. text the mystery guest. Um, so I, I will just say for a second that it is Easter Sunday and that, uh, it is again, as I said before, I think it's our 19th episode. I think this is our 19th episode in our, my, um, one month anniversary of not being in New York, of leaving New York and being in quarantine. Although I guess I was in quarantine before I left New York and, um, it is also, um, I believe, um, the anniversary of the discovery of the polo vaccination, polio vaccination. Well, that is a uh, cool fact. Yeah. Um, and, um, um, and I think that it's kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a truly kind of beautiful, um, it's a beautiful, um, let me see. I'm just going to double check that. Um, yeah. In 1953, Jonas Salk announced, uh, started issuing and yep. Uh, there were 58,000 people died in the United States, uh, reported in the United States that had polio in 1952, more than 3000 people died from the disease and became paralyzed or like, and then the rest became paralyzed for the most part. And then, um, he developed the vaccine. And then after that, uh, there are now zero people that have polio anymore for the most part. It's kind of an amazing- Yeah, ex- except amazing in places in the world where they kill people who show up to relieve, uh, to uh, give people the vaccine. Um, I thought it was like one of the more interesting things over the, of the last few weeks that some of those same groups, including the Taliban, announced that they would cooperate with international health authorities whom they usually do not cooperate with and sometimes kidnap and kill uh, over coronavirus. But they, you know, people think the anti-vaxxers are fierce in this country. Uh, In rural Pakistan, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a big, big problem and people still die as a result of polio as uh, as a result of it. Other than that, we have basically eradicated polio. Yeah, I think that that's, 
I don't know. It's kind of like a moving, it's a moving thing. And it's amazing how people sometimes can't get out of their own way. <laughs> like, well, you know? so that is, uh, it, it is, and I heard today, I think, and I don't remember where, that there has never been a vaccine successfully developed for any coronavirus. No, it's true. Uh, so it mutates very quickly. So it'd be interesting to know why the why the problem of the polio vaccine is so much less difficult than the problem of the uh, coronavirus vaccine. Um, I don't know, but I imagine that the coronavirus, all I know, I'm like, okay, so I'm not, I'm not a huge virologist, um, or anything, but what I do know is that like, uh, in highly mutable diseases, like ones that do like evolve very quickly. Um, those are the, like, those are like, and that's why the flu vaccine is hard to like kind of but we have for. flu vaccines. Yes, but right? the flu it's, vaccine it's, is based that, on last year's flu vaccines. Right, but it, but the point is it does immunize you against the strains that it immunizes you right. against. It's just that it 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 uh, mutates so quickly that those may not be the strains in circulation by the time you get yeah. it. Ah, and our mystery guest is here. Oh my gosh. Kate my has been in suspense about this. Uh, and okay. so uh, I have now promoted our mystery oh, guest, nice. the one, the only, Jonathan Rausch. And Jonathan, you should turn on your camera. Um, that would help. Yes, Here it's good to see you. I'm sorry I'm late. I was out social distancing in the Virginia trail system. And lost that is an appropriate thing to do. And you know, we you're only five minutes late, and in in lieu of fun, where we do no planning and we have no producers and there's no makeup, and Kate and I have plenty to talk about. And as you can see, we're all dressed up for the occasion. Um, it <laughs> well, really doesn't I, I was, matter. I was if concerned. You're a minutes late. I was concerned that if there was any fun, that it would be in the first three to five minutes and I would miss it. But apparently- No, that, there's never, there's never any case. fun on In Kate, fun. I love it's the It's nearly what we do when we're not allowed to have fun anymore. Yeah, I have fun with my backdrops. Thank you for, thank you for liking it. Yeah, this is, I'm like, I always, it's never on purpose, but I'm always end up, whenever I do these, I use cheers and I'm always sitting in front of Shelly Long. And then like here I'm in front of Lisa and it's like some type of meta thing that happens, which is like, I just basically block out my favorite character. Do you have a green screen? Cause you know, your microphone is appearing and disappearing as you move back and forth. I don't have a green screen, which it. is why it does not, it, it appears and disappears. See, as um, I move in and out toward it, I disappear and appear, right? And like, so does the now, couch. The now I have headset, now I don't. Pretty, and, the, and between your head and the headset is an entirely different universe. Correct. Than the one in the backdrop. It's it's all kind of strangely Heisenbergian. Um, I prefer, <laughs> I took an exact replica photo of this, the spot I sit in my dining room and I use, I use that, but it has animation. You want to see the animation? Are yeah. you that per, you're not that per, oh my gosh, I really do want to see it. Does it have you coming in and out? <laughs> That's excellent, Jonathan. I can make it look like it's opening and shutting a door. 
pretty excellent. I heard about this economist that apparently like on his lectures has like pocket doors behind him and his thing. And he like recorded a video of him like opening and like, like looking down and then like looking surprised, like he was interrupting someone and slamming them shut so that it just plays behind him as he like gives his lecture of like him being surprised by him giving a lecture. Um, it's well, super- the, the thing about the backgrounds, the reason they're going to be culturally important is a cousin of mine teaches at one of the Cal State schools in the LA area and reported that early on in the process of moving classes onto Zoom, a lot of the students, especially in some of the bigger classes, kind of forgot that their cameras are on. And one male student was walking around naked um, on, on the Zoom course. There and you go. And was, um, was using a bong. Um, <laughs> so, well, then you heard about the Harvard Law student that decided to clean his gun in the middle I did of- not. Oh, yes. I'm like, I don't know which is worse, someone cleaning the gun in the middle of the class or walking around naked or smoking like on a, like, like using a bong in the middle of class. Can, can I just say, speaking as a gay man, that's a very obvious choice. <laughs> um, so I just need to express my dissatisfaction with one aspect of In Lieu of Fun, which is- What's that? You, you failed to ask Oren Kerr about his automobile collection. You know, that is true. And I have even been offered a ride in one of those automobiles. And, um, Oren has you know, an automobile collection. Oren collects classic cars. Yes. Oh. Um, and some of them, I, there are two or three of them and they're pretty fabulous. I've only seen one. Um, but yes, that is true. There's many aspects of Oren Kerr that we did not talk about, but his, his classic cars are a good example. I would like to point out, however, that since we have this nice blow up on of on the screen of um, uh, the back of the Lawfare Challenge coin, um, which has in Latin the slogan, an oasis. Is that big- a bottle? Is that a glass of scotch? Yes, it is. Lady Justice <laughs> drinking scotch and recording a podcast which is exactly what we are doing now. And I just thought, you know, and you see uh, uh, the uh, male figure is also drinking scotch and he's writing a blog post. Um, Yeah. Excellent, Um, what is the motto? The motto is an oasis or an oasis of of uh, sensibleness in a vast desert of nonsense. Is that the permanent official motto or is that just the temporary Trump era uh, motto? You know, it was how David Chris once described lawfare and uh, we asked a classic scholar to translate it into Latin for the challenge coin. It is at least as far as the challenge coin goes the slogan. I don't know that we would put it on our letterhead or anything, but it's what what we uh, what we use. So, Jonathan, let's let's get right down to the point here. Um, uh, you, whenever we talk to Brookings interns, you and I, we give this talk to the Brookings interns, and you tell them. Be, don't be General McClellan, be General Grant. And your argument is General Grant 
was the successful hero of the Civil War because he was not afraid to fail. And he was willing to, you know, lose a bunch of people. He was willing to try new things. And General McClellan, first in his class at West Point, great general of his, he created a great Union Army, was really good at holding parades, was kind of afraid to use them because he was afraid of failure. So it seems to me that Donald Trump has taken your advice and he is not afraid of failure. He's definitely looked at the situation and said, I wanna be impulsive. I wanna be like General Grant, none of this pompous deep state General McClellan shit. Um, I want- I mean, McClellan know, also never became a president. So right? <laughs> And yeah, so I mean, like, I'm, I'm just wanna know, does this tend to cut against the arguments Maybe fear of failure has more to recommend it than we've been allowing the interns. Well, <clears throat> that's an interesting question. Um, one take on that would be that it's, Trump is a proof case of the roush wittis grant hypothesis, which is you've gotta be willing to take some risks and you've gotta be willing to fail and the, there are things that I admire about Donald Trump. There are aspects of his personality, like aspects of Saddam Hussein's personality, for example, which have served him well in life. They are daring, they are entrepreneurial, they are gutsy, they go places other people won't go. Um, they are men of action. Those are not necessarily bad things. And when George Patton has them in the right environment, or Ulysses Grant, though he's a much more thoughtful person, obviously, than Saddam Hussein or Donald Trump. By the way, did I just mention Donald Trump and Saddam Hussein in the same breath? Shame on me. Uh, those are not bad traits. We can admire that about Donald Trump while recognizing that he also has profoundly sociopathic disabilities that make those traits dangerous in him. So it's like, it sounds like your prescription is really instrumental, which is just like, if you want to be the best possible leader, these are the traits one should like exhibit, whether you have a moral code or abide by social norms or are in search of something greater than yourself is yet to be determined. <laughs> like Those well, are, those are yeah, separate. That's kind of right. Um, two things about that. The first is remember that when Ben and I give this speech, it's to Brookings interns who are privileged people who could easily get through pretty much their whole life without taking a bigger risk than going to law school. And we're trying to say to people in that particular social category, um, if you're not failing now and then you're not trying hard enough. Because for people like Ben and me and maybe you, I don't know you, but Brookings interns, the odds are stacked on our not taking enough risks, not doing enough interesting things. So there's an audience question, which is maybe a little different from, from Donald Trump. Um, the second point is a larger point that I picked up years ago in an interview with Victor David Hansen, who was, this is now almost 20 years ago, and he was, can we say more scholarly back then? He wasn't a Trumpist back then. You said it, I didn't. Oh, really? Is he a Trumpist now? Yes. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, I think he is. Um, 
and and we were I was writing about the firebombing of Hiroshima. Uh, sorry, the firebombing of Tokyo, which I was going to say, I was like, is that a different no, term of no, art? No. Okay, it, got it. This was May of 1945. The Allies, knowing full well that Tokyo was a civilian target made of wood, reduced it to ashes and killed as many people probably as died in Hiroshima. And I was talking to him about that, saying, was this a war crime? And he made a point, which has stuck with me, which is democracies will do terrible things to defend themselves. They pride themselves on their human rights, but there are certain circumstances in which they will call upon people with characteristics who are otherwise intolerable. Um, Bomber Harris of the RAF was one of those people. Um, Curtis LeMay was one of those people in the US. And he said what we- Eventually do went on to be the vice presidential running mate of one George Wallace, as I yes. recall. Well, that's exactly right. Um, and, and he said, what we do with these people is we call on them in time of need to do tough, dirty work, which is what they're made for in life. And then when it's done, we throw them down the memory hole. And the larger point he's making is there are occasions in civic life when we need to have people like Donald Trump around. The problem is now is not one of them. And this job is not the right job. So what was the right job in public life for Donald Trump? A man who is lazy and by your account, sociopathic um, and uh, corrupt and infinitely narcissistic. So presumably you don't want him running a military outfit. You don't like, it's not the Curtis LeMay. He's not a military genius. So there's no like patent like role for him or grant like role for him. Can you imagine a public role for Donald Trump in which that collection of characteristics would have been a positive? I can, you'd need a role which involved a lot of charisma, um, very good camera skills, good communication skills, but being able to talk very simply. You'd want a place where it's important to look good, but you don't actually have to do any work. You'd want to be able to sound decisive. Like basically he should go back to running The Apprentice. Correct. And his plan, as you recall, was not to win the presidency. It was to run for president, get more famous, sell more products, and do more reality TV. And that was a good plan. It just all went terribly wrong in November of 2016. You sound almost sympathetic to him. I'm trying, Ben. <laughs> We're all trying. It's okay. <laughs> so, guys, if you want to get in on the conversation, we seem to have avoided the Zoom block bombers today. This is wonderful. Uh, yeah, this is yeah. really nice. Um, so if you John, want to get in on the conversation, uh, shoot a note in the Q&A and we'll drag you in. We'll rapture you in to talk to Jonathan Rausch. Uh, Jonathan, you know, for those of you who don't know him, he's one of the people who kind of popularized the idea of gay marriage. He's uh, wrote a, in, uh, he's written just a bunch of awesome stuff on a bunch of subjects. Uh, he, he and I sometimes write stuff together. He's one of my very, very favorite Brookings colleagues and one of my favorite people. And by the way, when I said, we were having a Zoom cocktail party and I mentioned the idea that we should do this online with an audience and everybody made fun of me. He was the chief make fun maker. So do you, you, sh do you, you hate should it? all Do you think it's terrible? 
Uh, I don't remember it the way Ben does. I don't recall. <laughs> I like our. Fr- I like that you brought in your uh, primary source that rebuts you, Ben. <laughs> I, I'm afraid of the idea. truth. But since we spent most of that drinks um, disrespecting people that we know, it did seem to me that we'd better not put anything quite like that <laughs> on the air. That seems fair. Um, right, so, John, fair. can I ask you a question? Okay. Yeah, which is just kind of- I hate the just, questions that begin with, can I ask you a question? I know, I hate that. It's like very much like it's a real bait and switch. Um, but I was gonna ask, uh, I was gonna ask about, I know this is a weird question, but I was gonna ask what you were like in high school and like whether you had any inclination that you were gonna end up doing kind of journalism and the work that you, and the research that you ended up doing, if you feel like there was a natural progression through your life to being a person that asks questions and kind of has uh, is social about asking questions. And if that's something that you saw happening, like kind of consistently over time, or did you like know that you wanted to be a journalist and go after it? Or was it kind of like that, that, that who you were ended up being what you became? Well, fabulous question. Fabulous question. Um, If you're really interested for only, I think 299, on Amazon, you can purchase my little memoir. It's called Denial, My 25 Years Without a Soul, which is about me from age five, earliest memories to 25. And it's actually I'm probably looking the best, it up now. I'm putting a link the best, in. The best writing I've ever done. Yeah, it's an amazing it, book. I now yeah. I want to really read it. So it's not about the career aspect of your question, but it's about all the ways that growing up without any hope of marrying or being normal can distort a personality until deep into life. And um, I hope people check it out because it's a sweet piece of writing. So on the career thing, I wanted to be a musician because I loved classical music and Hmm. I wanted to play it. I discovered, however, taking two years of piano lessons that I had no talent for it. (laughs) And I rediscovered that in college when I didn't make it into the Yale chorus. And I knew I could write decently And so when I didn't make it into the Yale chorus my sophomore year, I went off and had a good think in a college courtyard and decided, well, I'll try the newspaper. I'll try out for that. And that became this. And it's, I wish I had a glorious story. No, I love that story. Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, but, but that's really how it happened. And then doing it, I discovered I liked it. And then that, in fact, I loved it. And the rest is history. Yeah, but, but there's another aspect of that story that you sometimes tell, which is that in your earlier career, you always you imagined the journalism as something you were doing while you wrote a work of titanic importance. Um, and over time, uh, the you found that actually what you thought was the subtext or the, the, the background was really more of the foreground. I'm not sure which was background and which was foreground. I always knew that I would not be a talented daily reporter. I can't do what Shane Harris does. I'm just not that good at it. Um, oh my God, that it was, a, I did that. I worked at Talking Points Memo shortly after college and had to write every day, a, five point memo that said 
five short stories that were like 500 words long that I was going to write that day. And it killed me. Like it was almost like, I feel like the, it felt like the pressure of having to write a comic strip every day. I was like, this was the, this was the one thing I told myself I would never do. <laughs> anyway. This will give you respect for what, what media are doing, especially right now when the, I think the mainstream media has done a magnificent job in the last three to four years of airing what needs to be aired. So deep, deep respect, but I don't have that gene. I was always better at books and longer articles. I always had an academic bent. Um, I always yeah, was me too. philosophy and those things kind of merged when I started doing these kind of longer articles and books that were kind of about ideas. Um, some people would say we're actually kind of boring, which would maybe why we haven't attracted any spammers today. But yeah, I no, of, we've been attracting them other days. It's just maybe they're taking Easter Sunday off because they're, they're all. But in. Um, I was also lucky because the job I had did not exist in the generation before. The generation before, as you know, Ben, journalists were all, you know, the highest end journalist was David Broder. And you were very lucky to be that. Most people were quite blue collar and they were just out there on the beat. And then in the 80s, something came along that came, it became known as the conceptual scoop. And that was people like you and me who began writing articles about ideas and began um, turning ideas into articles. Andrew Sullivan was one of those people. Ron Brownstein, you're clearly one. I was one. A lot of- a No, lot I'm, of I, I'm a bit younger though. I mean, I like that was a well-developed thing yeah. by the time. I mean, I think of that as like, almost like a creature of Michael Kinsley. It, New Republic, it, that was hatched in New Republic. It was hatched in the Atlantic, also National Journal. The late lamented National Journal, which is yep. the magazine that I was associated with for almost 30 years, very proudly, also invented that. That's where Ron Brownstein was, Paul Starobin. Uh Washington Monthly put that kind oh of- Oh my God, back. Washington Monthly, yeah. Um, back, back under under uh, Bhagwan Charlie Peters. Exactly. And, you know, Fallows hatched there. Fallows was a pioneer of this. Uh, you came, you're 10 years younger, so this is mostly set up by the time you come on. No. Yeah. And one of my first jobs was before Talking Points Memo, two years before Talking Points Memo, was that I was at abcnews.com as an associate producer. And that was actually a tremendously interesting place to be because the dot-com side, this was 2006, the dot-com side of the business was the like the redheaded stepchild in the basement. No one touched it. We were like literally like working on like broken computers trying to hold this like website together. Um, and it was a really weird, uh, it was a weird moment for figuring out like, uh, for like major media organizations to figure out what they were gonna do with the internet, which was clearly not going away. <laughs> like it was just like, which is really what it felt like. Um, so. I don't know, but that's a different, it's a different thing. It's a different thing technologically than what you and Ben went through in the eighties. Um, yeah, so one, of the, one of the surprises about the digital era is it's actually put a premium on this kind of conceptual journalism um, because it's cheap to produce, frankly, compared to doing an investigative report and because smart young people can get in on it. So Ezra Klein, Matt Iglesias, that whole generation. Well, that's up. my group. 
We all lived in the same house, but I'm not like, you don't have to hold back. Like I've, I'm just as critical of them. So. Well, a lot no. of respect for a lot of what they do, but the point is the internet turned out to be good for this business model that kind of combines journalism with punditry and yes. rides the line between academia and conventional journalism. And so there's tons of that now and everyone's doing it. And can I just also say that like, and I don't want to like, I'm not going to, I'm not speaking to any particular people, but like having been in that world for three years that what I really realized was that like the stories that filtered there, that there was like the, once you see how the sausage gets made in news, it seems a lot less democratic than, uh, than you uh, kind of ever think from the outside. But like, once you kind of see like what stories get picked, who talks to who, who has juice with who and what other news organizations to promote stories and to push them up and to give them, to give them eyes um, ends up being incredibly powerful. And uh, I mean, you guys know this, I'm not like saying this, like you guys obviously know this, but like, I just watched my stories die that I thought were important until they, someone decided they weren't, they were important. And then they like, got promoted. And then it was like all of these types of like these, uh, these types of things they are all versions of kind of shadow banning or like censorship. Um, but it's also just like, there were these little cabals of people. And you would, when I was in DC, uh, as a journal, like as a news, as having left journalism to start law school, um, when I was in DC, I would go to parties and you would see the same people that were retweeting each other and re reposting each other and everything else, all just hanging out in a circle, like a little closed circle group. And it was the same group of people all the time. And it was just kind of, that was what was turning up to Matt out. That was what was turning up to like Chris Matthews. That was what was turning up to all of the big, like, you know, the, the big thing. So it was just a crazy. Look, thing. I mean, that, that is absolutely true. And actually one of the things when, when, when we started Lawfare, one of the reasons that we did it was to concentrate a lot of the sort of writing we were doing in one place in order to generate those effects where you would have a circle of people who was all kind of writing in the same place on similar themes and thereby formed the kind of community that could amplify each other's voices in a way that was effective. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a kind of rat pack of, of young analytical journalists, it, but it was, you know, it was a very deliberate effort to create some of those same network effects. All right, so we have a question from the uh, oddly named Big Blue Blogger. I assume the U is supposed to be a long U there because Big Blah Blogger sounds terrible. So uh, Big <laughs> Blue Blogger, what's on your mind? Thanks all. Great show as always. Uh, John, I just wanted to follow up on your concept of, of Trump as this uh, decisive entrepreneur. Um, I was in New York in the 70s and 80s, and he may have once been the, that guy when he was blowing up the USFL and bankrupting casinos and blowing hundreds of millions on the plaza. But do you really think he still is that guy or is that just a character he plays on TV? Because his actual decision making looks pretty vacillating, indecisive and blowing in the wind. I, I wouldn't disagree with, with a single word of that. Um, are you, is Big Blue Blogger oh. known to the podcast? Because it sounds like a familiar voice, but I'm not placing it. Big Blue Blogger has been seen in the, uh, in the participants list in the past. And I have 
uh, but I don't believe we have ever spoken. Is that correct, Big Blue Blogger? That is correct, Ben. And I apologize for the spelling too. The E got truncated by Twitter when I signed up. No, oh, no, I, I, I think it's say. good because without the big, without the E, it, it creates a sense of mystery because you have to hold in your mind the possibility that it might be big blah blogger, <laughs> which, you know, just brings a smile to your lips every time you think about that possibility. So I'm down with there not being an E in that. Good stuff. So so everything you say is true. Um, the thing about being Ulysses S. Grant, for example, is that he had to spend eight years basically failing at one thing after another and getting humble to be who he was. Trump is someone who by hook or by crook, I don't know how, but he keeps managing to get by with bluster and with pure weirdness and Gross. That <laughs> to build his confidence that he is never wrong. So imagine a kind of nightmare scenario of Ulysses S. Grant doing everything wrong in the Civil War, but still winning battle after battle and coming to think of himself as invulnerable. You get to somewhere like Trump. That's not the kind of failure you learn from. Also, the most, I think the single most insightful thing I ever heard about Trump. I can't vouch for the truth is, but it kind of rings right. It was from Tina Brown of all people. <laughs> she, so Tina Brown was editor of the New Yorker and Vanity Fair and a huge presence in the New York social scene. And she said on the Femsplainers podcast advertisement, super fun podcast, femsplainers.com. She said that she used to socialize with Trump when he was married to Ivana and that in those days he was fun to be with, he got out a lot, he was quite sophisticated. And if you look at him at his talk show appearances from that, that period, he's really quite an attractive person. He's not like he is today. He's kind of self-consciously funny. He's clearly very bright. Um, he's engaging people in a much more human way. And she said that when Ivana left him, he was never the same that it wiped him out, that he stopped going out much. He became a prisoner in his own world. And that always kind of stayed with me. Maybe that's what happened to him. Did you the think that he was really up. bright? Sorry, go ahead, Big Blue Bauer. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry about that. The timing does line up. That's all I was gonna add. Thank you, sir. No, it's a good, I think that there has been, I really, spe I really hate speculation on people's like mental health from afar. And like what's going on with them from our, even when it's the president. <clears throat> and I just think that there is, you know, like all of the papers and all of like the, all of the, all of the psychologists who have written in saying that he like Trump clearly has narcissistic personality disorder or that he clearly has some type of schizoid disorder or like the, like, you know, that he has like power complexes. Like, yes, all of that is true. I'm sure all of that is true in certain places, but like those are not meaningful distinctions. It just kind of seems to me, uh, the thing that's interesting to me, John, that you said that was that like, you think that he's intelligent and I, I don't know what your definition of intelligent is because like, just like narcissistic personality disorder or whatever, I actually think that these are like subjective, dis like subjective labels that we put on things. But I'm curious, like what makes you think that he's uh, uh, intelligent? Um, before I have a go at that, I, I can't resist polling Ben on this issue. <laughs> well, 
yeah, I mean, this is the most generous we've ever been in the framing of this question. <laughs> Polling on the question of whether he's intelligent? Yeah. Yes, and in what sense? Well, I don't have a simple answer to that. What I would say is, uh, so he is not a good analyst. He is not a, um, you know, a huge amount of what we call intelligence is actually verbal acuity of which he has very little. Um, on the other hand, I think he has had very keen and shrewd insights about the American electorate over a protracted period of time. Um, and those include a, that the entire Republican establishment was wrong about what the base wanted. Um, B, that evangelical voters are actually tribal creatures who don't vote on the basis of the values that they profess. They've, they behave as other Republican-based voters behave, and they are very easy to feed. Um, uh, and see that you can win an election in the United States at the national presidential election entirely by feeding the base of your own party on the theory that it will be energized. Uh, uh, your marginal party voters will return to the fold. And if your base is more energized than the other side's base, you may well win. I think those are three pretty profound insights, whether he lucked into them or uh, had, I don't think he had them at an analytic level, but I do think he had them at some kind of lizard brain level. And I think they are pretty impressive actually. And so I don't know how to answer that qu question simply. Um, I, I do want... think, I do think, uh, it, I, I, I guess I, I think I, I have no doubt that he would not score especially high on a, on a waste. Um, and I also have no doubt that that may say something about the sophistication of the waste. I was just gonna, yeah. What the we, adult yeah. IQ test. Huh. Well, so before you answer, John, just really quickly, I want to say, Ben, you made you said that he like. Uh, Trump's um, insight, and I really want to say, like, make a distinction here. Insight implies something that you have self-realized, not in your lizard brain, but in your like in your forebrain. And to make a Kahneman and Traversky comparison, it's like a, it's it's basically like a system one, system two comparison. It's thinking fast, thinking slow. Um, his instincts, I think are very pronounced and maybe correct for people who are just like him, uh, which happens to be 38% of the pop like population pretty much unmovably. So, uh, and that, 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 those are people that basically just operate on a system as we would say, it, like as Kahneman would say, a system one type of lizard brain type of thinking. Um, System two is like insight, which is explaining yourself to people and giving reasoned explanation for things. And he doesn't do that. So that seems to be a, like a thing that I'm just, that I would, that I would point out. Yeah, so I, I don't disagree with that. He's, he is remarkably 
and consistently inarticulate. He is incapable of reflection. All of those things are true. Um, and yet I, and so if you want to dismiss as insight things that he's kind of doing intuitively and getting right, um, I won't fight you on that except to say, uh, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to get to the presidency with, like, if you're doing that on instinct and shooting from the hip, something is going right cognitively because that's an extremely hard thing to do. That's fair. I, I see that. So John, you want to square this for us? <laughs> I was going to make a, a, a related point, which is something I've, I've learned in life. I'll try not here to make any condescending comments about millennials, millennials, um, but at my advanced age of almost 60 is that if you play tennis with some schlub who obviously doesn't know the sport, who beats you once, okay, beginner's luck, beats you twice, okay, beginner's luck, beats you three times, but on about the 10th or 20th time that he's won and you've lost, you've got to deal with the fact that he's a pretty darn good tennis player. Um, or that he's reinventing tennis. Well, I don't think so. So most of the traits that he lacks that I most admire and miss are traits that map more onto the wisdom spectrum than the intelligence spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, the wisdom spectrum, there's a chapter on wisdom in my latest book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. Oh, oh my God. I have that at home and I unfortunately didn't have room to pack it. I like literally am like sitting, it's sitting on my, I didn't even realize that oh. was, I didn't. Too Sorry. bad. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's you. <laughs> it would have looked just like the Simpsons. Okay. <laughs> no. um, yeah, that's me. So the, the traits that we need, especially in a president, the Lincoln-esque traits, intelligence is nice. But if, if a question can be settled on raw intelligence, on calculating power, on knowing bunches of stuff, it will be settled at a lower level than the president. What you want from a president is some ability to reflect, some balance, some ex worldly experience in life, some self-awareness, some awareness of others. And above all, what, what wisdom is about is it's pro-social. Wisdom is good at helping people negotiate conflicts with themselves and with each other. Trump has, he's probably the first recorded negative on the wisdom scale. On raw intelligence, I'm very impressed with how much he manages to pick up, how much he knows, his ability to tweet on the spur of the moment with seemingly synoptic knowledge of a lot of things that you and I don't care about, but what's on the news, what ratings are going on. He's clearly got a mind that picks up a lot of stuff. He doesn't read. People who know about dyslexia say he obviously has it. It doesn't make you unintelligent, but it means that you cannot process information by reading a briefing paper. You're gonna to wanna to look at pictures. But if you look at pictures, you will retain it and you are thinking. So on that basis, um, I think it's actually more than just animal cunning. I think he's a very bright guy and, and the rest of us should just own up to that. It's, he wouldn't do well at Harvard Law School, but yeah, I, I do intellectual firepower there. It's just the wrong kind of firepower for that job. Yeah, there's an elitism that's built into the judgment around his intelligence. I completely agree with that. All right, so before we go on, we have two uh, uh, written comments here. 
Uh, one from John Bordeaux says, just wanted to thank your guest. Demosclerosis was enormously influential to my thinking as I began my college education. John, I know that's a work of which you're, you remain particularly proud. I happen to think it's one of your best pieces of work. I just so heard it. For the, uh, for the audience out there who has never heard of demosclerosis, what is the, uh, the 10 sentence account of demosclerosis? The 10 sentence account. Well, first of all, just so people know how to no, order- 10 sentence, not 10 cents. Um, just so people know how to order my book, which is of course the important part of this conversation. It's currently published under the title Governments and Why Washington Stopped Working. So the notion of this book is that over time in a free society, governments gradually lose the ability to innovate. And this is a natural process. It's like the aging process. It's not normally reversible, but it can be managed. The reason they age is that over time, interest groups form in society. Um, these are like lobbies that get stuff, the sugar lobby, the cotton lobby, the trucking lobby, the AMA, you know, there's, there's zillions of them. And they organize and they get programs and subsidies. And once subsidies are there, they essentially never go away. So little by little, the, gov the government, the budget becomes clotted with things that have been there forever. That makes it very hard to innovate, except in odd moments like this one, when you're willing to draw on the credit card, deficit credit card for $2 trillion. That's not going to happen very often. So gradually, um, so in real life, problems get solved by trial and error. And if you can't try new stuff, then you're gonna be stuck with the old stuff forever. And that's why we still have maritime subsidies dating back to the time of the constitution. The argument of my book is that this sounds like terrible news. It's not. Actually, democracies are better at dealing with this than autocracies like the Soviet Union. Uh, China's gonna to have to deal with it. It looks dynamic, but it's pretty rigid structure. It's gonna have a very hard time adapting once it's fully caught up with the West. Um, but the, to manage it, you have to do some things. Um, you have to be willing to make a lot of incremental reforms and chip away at all these subsidies and programs and that liberals should be the people most willing instead of the people least willing to do that because otherwise government will kind of turn sclerotic and not work and people will get angry at it. I'm not sure if that was 10 sentences or one very that's long. A, that's yeah, a pretty, that good, pretty good account of the book. All right, second question, I suppose- But buy the book anyway. Buy the book anyway. I just brought two copies. I brought one under the old name and one under the new name. <laughs> oh, well, you want the new one for sure because it's revised. It's much better. Yeah. Well, I'm going to read that one and then I'm going to someday meet you and make you sign the other one. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, how many uh, of my books have we plugged yet? Let's see. Three so far. Yeah, there are yeah, some more. We're, we're like, we're, like, we're cranking. It's, it's like it's I love this show. I love Technically, this four, I think. <laughs> So Joel Woodward asks, have you ever considered having Dan Carlin on as a guest? So Dan Carlin, for those of you who don't know him, is, know uh, is. he is the, he's a podcaster and former radio show host, but he, he does an incredible podcast called Hardcore History, which is a- uh, Oh, I've heard uh, about Hardcore History. Yeah, and I had him on the Lawfare podcast when he did uh, a five or four or five episode, 20 hour history of World War I uh, on hardcore history, which I thought was just one of the most spectacular things that anyone had ever done with a podcast before. And he's eccentric, he's, uh, he's idiosyncratic, 
Um, and I recommend Hardcore History to anybody who uh, likes history and likes to hear some uh, very opinionated account of history. Uh, I have had Dan Carlin on the Lawfare podcast um, and I'd happily have him on in lieu of fun anytime. The, you know, the, the truth is though, that this is a show where we kind of get our friends because uh, it has to be someone you can kind of text in the middle of the day and it's like, hey, do you want to do this tomorrow? Or, or do you want to do this today? And they have to be people like John who will be like, sure. And like, so I don't otherwise, know. Even like, even when I had, we, even when we had Doug Bernstein, my friend who's like an ear, he was like, what is this? What am I doing? What am I signing up for? What am I going, what's happening? What's the format? And I was like, please just chill out. Like, was, well, I, was, I was surprised when you had Doug Bernstein. I really, I like that show. It's fantastic. But I was oh, good. surprised because I thought the whole premise of this show is you get people on who don't have anything better to do. <laughs> But didn't you hear what he said about like how, like we, oh, I didn't get to read his texts. He's not, he doesn't have anything to do. He's in Richmond, Virginia. That's and like there, and like there's a number of COVID cases but they're not in the ER. And what he basically was like, what was incredible about his, his show was that he was like, we don't have anyone around and all of our, all of our finances are falling off a cliff. Oh, that's true. So, so the rule does hold. That was one of two interesting things about the show. The other was, if I may say so, that you had no idea that Richmond, Virginia was not a small town. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, She's a yeah, I, I felt, thank, thanks John. <laughs> that was, I was, I just like, I don't really, it's like, I come from Rochester, New York. Um, Richmond's bigger than Rochester. I know, but like I looked it up after this. I'm and sorry, I felt like I'm just an idiot. And I was like, okay, but like, but basically, like I was like, okay, I just have no idea how big anything is. And like, yes, that was kind of embarrassing. But he says, I forgot to send this, but he sent this to me the next morning while he was on his rounds. Thanks. That was so very fun. By the way, it is crazy quiet this morning here in the emergency department. I've only seen about five patients since I got here at seven this morning. This was at 1140. So well into his shift. Uh, less than 20 patients so far today through the whole department will be financially ca catastrophic is what he basically said. Yeah. So, I mean, so this bring more COVID cases to the emergency room in Richmond. That's the lesson. Or if not. You're not Non-COVID cases. If you're not non-COVID, any, bring anything to go the to Richmond. room. But so no, I thought it was. This is why I didn't know what he, I had. I hadn't talked to him about this beforehand. I had no. I had like okay. So he and his wife Becca are good friends, and they are terrible at texting. <laughs> like I will have no problem throwing them under that bus. They are terrible at staying in touch, and so like it took me a while to get in touch with him to be able to just be like, "Can you do this?" And I had no idea what was going on. Like I had no idea what he was going to say on that show. And so I kind of think that it was great. I thought it, it was, was really awesome wonderful. Real time reporting. Would it be rude in the time remaining? I know hosts hate it when their guests try to take over the show, but I actually- No, no, please take over the show. Cause that's the thing. It's not really a show. It's kind of a cocktail party, okay. kind of improv, well, kind of Wikipedia. So you, you might, take it over. This might be inappropriate for cocktail hour because it's a dead serious question. I'm yeah. only asking because I really want to know. 
can someone explain to me how worried to be about the firing of the two inspectors general, one in the intelligence system and the other in the uh, oversight of, of the, um, the COVID money? Well, I wrote kind a little of. piece about that <laughs> on Lawfare, which uh, basically said in any other context, it would be a major national scandal and it should be attracting a lot more attention than it is. And uh, Trump is relying on the fact that we are distracted to get away for, with something genuinely outrageous. And that is a uh, continued, you know, continuation of the norm violation that began when he fired Preet Bharara um, and accelerated through the firing of Jim Comey and, you know, from there. Um, but, you know, these are, uh, the U.S. attorney in New York is, is a slightly different matter, but these are, the FBI director and the inspectors general are not supposed to be positions that serve at the pleasure of the president. They're supposed to be uh, positions that are appointed by the president. They can be removed. They, you know, traditionally you remove people only when they do something wrong from these positions. And Trump's uh, uh, has really trod on that. And I think uh, we should be very anxious about it. One, the firing of Atkinson is clearly a retaliatory gesture. Uh, and in fact, it's overtly a retaliatory gesture. You know, when he was asked why he did it, Trump said uh, because he submitted a phony report and sent it to Congress, right? That, i.e. he blew the whistle on the Ukraine stuff. So, I mean, it's an overtly retaliatory gesture against somebody who did his job in good faith. Um, and Glenn Fine, Glenn Fine's a figure about whom I have kind of mixed feelings. He was the inspector general of the Justice Department for a long time in which role he was very deeply hated um, by Justice Department officials who regarded him as uh, sort of hyper, you know, uh, I remember him being described as our own internal Ken Starr. Um, that said, he is a very able investigator. Um, I don't know his work product to have been deficient in the findings that he made. He was very aggressive and he has been the acting inspector general at the Pentagon and was voted by his colleagues to supervise this $2 trillion of spending. And I'm sure like many Justice Department officials over the years, Trump didn't want somebody of that aggressiveness investigating him. But unlike those Justice Department officials who grumbled about Glenn Fine, sometimes using words that you wouldn't want to repeat on a family show like this, like that goddamn fucking asshole Glenn Fine, you know, <laughs> um, uh, unlike those people who would grumble about it and say things like that, they never actually moved to have him ousted, right? And that is the difference between Donald Trump and the, uh, you know, the last gazillion administrations. And so like, I think like if Donald Trump had said, boy, I really don't like it that Glenn Fine is, you know, is, you know, doing this, this is gonna cause us a lot of problems. Um, and if they'd whispered that in the ear of a hundred journalists, um, that would be the rough equivalent of the way the last two administrations would have handled it. Neither of them would have dreamt 
of firing Glenn Fine. And, you know, like, so, like, I think you can keep in mind two things. One is that there may be legitimate reasons why lots of the investigated community don't like Glenn Fine. And number two, that's what the system is for, right? You know, to have, to have you have the fear of God and inspectors general in you when you spend $2 trillion of the federal government's money uh, in a very short period of time. And to have the president just to be able to remove that person with impunity because he doesn't like that prospect is a pretty deep change in, you know, not in the formal powers of the presidency, but in the actual powers of the presidency de facto. Do we know yet who the replacements are? I mean, is this, could this turn out to be a case where Trump does something very obnoxious, but the successors turn out to be decent people and the and job goes on? So he has named uh, the uh, inspector general of the EPA to replace Glenn Fine. Um, I don't know who will replace him as chair of that board. Um, uh, there is no inspector general. I mean, there, there are a, a small number of inspect, former inspectors general of the stature and experience of Glenn Fine. Michael Horowitz, for example, but he's not it's still in business. Um, uh, or, sorry, Michael Horowitz is currently the Justice Department inspector general. He is uh, not of the same stature as Glenn Fine, the former, Glock Fine's predecessor, Michael Bromwich, is kind of at that level of, of uh, re, you know, regard. And uh, but Fine is a unusual figure. He's been around a long time, right? And um, and so I think if you, you know, you decapitate that, you send a message. And one of the messages you send is, if I don't like your findings, I'm going to rip, you know, rip you from your position. And that is something that, you know, the, the combined, like the combination of the Atkinson firing, which is I'm removing you because I don't like what you did. And the fine removal is I don't, I'm removing you because I know your reputation and I don't want you to do what I think you're likely to do. Those, that's a powerful message if you send the, if you do it in combination. And I promise you it was heard in the inspector general community as they call themselves. I mean, it's, that's gonna have a long tail in that community. I'm finding a lot to worry about. No, there, there's a lot to worry about in that episode. And, and you know, the president's people followed it up. If you look on Real Clear Politics last week, there was an article in which, you know, it's impossible to tell if it's a trial balloon or a harbinger but that he, they had leaked to, I forget the name of the reporter, that they were contemplating a mass removal of all the remaining Obama administration appointed IGs. And so you, 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 know, you take an action and then you dangle the more dramatic action and that really does send a message. And so, you know, uh, I don't know what to, you know, what to, tell you, except like, as you know, this is what Susan and my book is about, or at least one significant chapter of it is about, uh, you know, the threat to use powers and the way you can leverage, uh, 
leverage those threats into uh, action. So look, I'd love to tell you it's not as big a deal as it sounds, but it's as big a deal as it sounds. Kate, it's 5.58. I was gonna kind of end in a high note. I really wanted to re come back and I'm sorry. I'm sorry, John, you weren't here before, but we were talking about, I mentioned the fact that it's the, um, it's the 50th anniversary of the uh, effective polio vaccine. And uh, I thought that that was kind of a lovely high note to end with, a hopeful note um, of the eradication of certain types of, of diseases through vaccine. Um, and uh, it is in April 12, 2005, uh, 2000, uh, yeah, sorry, excuse me. It's not the 50th anniversary. That is, it's, 70th anniversary. Yeah, sorry, 70th anniversary of the eradication of the, the polio vaccine. But anyways, basically it's a, it's kind of been like an amazing trajectory in the last 15 years of the internet through fighting back against vaccines and fighting back against the idea of like vaccines being a solution to things. And I'm just kind of like wondering if you could close out, John, like with all of your experience and everything else, like, do you feel like we have, um, do you feel like there is a, a movement forward in all of this? Um, how fucked are we? Yeah, yeah, how <laughs> fucked are we, John? On a scale of one to 10. Sorry, I was basically trying to move us past the, like the, uh, the oversight the oversight general, like, I don't really want, I like inspector general, I can't handle it. So no, no. Cause we're going to finish on your song of the day. Cause yeah. don't forget that oh, Maggie, God. you owe Shoot. Maggie a oh, song God. of the day. Oh no. Okay. But, so while Jonathan's it. telling us how fucked we are and whether there's a path out of the wilderness here, you prep our song of the day. Are we talking about the political dimension or are we talking about the virus? The whole, dimension? We, it's what the, the Israelis call the situation. <laughs> <laughs> which encompasses all of it. I'm going to go on. I'm going to go with this is the darkest period of my entire life. And I'm about to turn 60. And I did live through the Cold War. Uh, it was not. As Do you remember the Cuban Missile Crisis? Yeah, I'm going to say that we had competent leadership through the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was a close call. Um, but I don't have confidence in the national leadership. Um, the challenge is the blow to the economy is stupendous. People I know, people you know, are losing jobs, losing companies. A lot of that won't come back. I retain my optimism in the longer term. Um, we're still not at the Civil War level. Um, I just think it's going to be real challenging to get there. The good news, if there is some, you know, everything I'm saying is obvious because I'm pulling this out of my ass, obviously. Um, we are seeing the citizenry and the governors and the states respond pretty well to this crisis. We are seeing lots of people lining up to sit down at sewing machines that they haven't used since they were children and make masks and round them up and bring them to emergency departments. There will be a vaccine for this thing probably, though there's still no AIDS vaccine, um, so no guarantees. So it's a question of getting through. So long tunnel dark tunnel but the light is probably not a train i'm going to go with that but i i i agree and i also as like i one of my 
darkest but most favorite of tomes is um and the band played on um which is a story of reporting out from the aids epidemic um which always reminds me that gay men experiences this type of contagion and this type of moment before and in quiet and in shame in a way that like was really not spoken about and i really think that it's time that people outed that disease in that way um anyway sorry it means so much that you said that um for homosexual american men this is our second time around yeah Uh, and it's not even the worst and uh it was wonderful wonderful moment the other day when tony fauci at a white house podium mentioned that, um, mentioned what the gay community had been through and how as a result it had become more of a community and less of a population and how the gay marriage, he didn't say this, but it's true, the same-sex marriage movement comes out of the AIDS crisis. It's why I'm married today. So there's going to be strange and interesting and actually beneficial consequences down the road. But thank you for remembering those were those were very dark days. Yeah, truly. It's like, but, but like, this is why it's important that people write books and it's important why people like put down their thoughts in these moments, because I didn't live through that moment. I lived through that moment because I read that book and like, I am an empathetic person. And I like, like to think that I like thought through that, that period, but like, I've been thinking about that a lot. And so of all of my queer communities that I'm attached to, it's very hard for, for a lot of, um, a lot of minority populations, um, in various, um, in various ways, but yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming on today, John. It's love been lovely meeting you and having you. Um, I hope you come on again. I hope if you're ever desperate, and you have absolutely no one better to go to. No, we like, like literally the, the, this is what happened. I was like, I have nobody to, to like, to come up with because a lot of my female friends have babies and they're like, they just are like completely chaotic and don't feel like they can deal with stuff. And Ben was like, it's okay. I've got someone for this week. And I was like, great. Who is it? And he was like, he's awesome. And I was like, well, who is it? <laughs> I was like, well, tell me. Like, and he was like, I can't tell you. Would violate the mystery guest code. <laughs> and so, like, you couldn't you were too tell kind. me. I would, I would walk on hot coals for Ben Wittes. There is no one I've learned more from or come to love more. And uh, you're me a friend. too. And you're a friend by proximity. So I'm delighted to be here. Thank John. you for joining us, Jonathan, and for right. all you do. So, Kate, what is our mystery uh, song that we are going I'm out gonna on? I'm going to play today? us out. Hold on. I'm going to play us out. And I will do the credits while, but you got to explain the mystery song. I don't, okay. Like, why, why is this the song today? This is Al Green's Let's Stay Together. And that's, that's I think it explains itself. It explains itself. <laughs> so that's all I've got. Uh, I'm about to, yeah, there you go. Ready? Yeah. I don't know if it's going to let you talk over it. So do you want to do the credits now? No, no, no. Just play the song. If Like, worst that'll happen is, uh, you know, we'll, uh, worst that'll happen is they won't be able to hear me. Uh, I don't know if they can hear you. <laughs> I can hear you. And so look, uh, if, uh, you know, we'll be back tomorrow and at five. 
And until then. Until then, in lieu of fun and in coronavirus solidarity. Yeah, you can't have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun, we'll be back tomorrow at five. Yes, we will. Bye, Ben. I'm going to let the song play, but I'm going to close my video. Yeah, we'll let it play out. Yeah. Bye. Ciao. Just came to see